There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Walton. This is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 31st of May 2010. Newcomers, as always, I suggest you look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com website. Bookmark all the other sites for future use in case the com goes down, which it sometimes does. Sometimes the other ones go down and vice versa. Anyway, you can always get the latest shows if you have these sites bookmarked. And while you're at it, remember, remember you can also get downloads for prints up of a lot of the talks I've given over the years from all the sites in English. But if you want them in other languages, go into Alan Watt Sentient, sentinel.eu. That's the European sites listed on the front page of the com site. And you can get uh, a choice of different languages for prints up the talks as well. And they all carry, they all carry the audios. While you're there, look into the books I have for sale. They're different. They teach you how, through by reading them, in fact, to use parts of your brain that's been dormant for a long time because you're conditioned to think in a linear fashion and you're so easily managed by mass media marketers and those that govern you. Most of whom you don't elect, by the way. They're way above that level. And I teach you little contracts that they pull on you to stop your mind from working. And you'll see them as you read through the books. Because I teach you to see things from different angles and perspectives as you're reading. And that's how you're supposed to be. You're supposed to look at things from all different angles. Even if you get enthralled in that which you're reading. And that's a trick too. The enthrallers, and uh, by the way, they use their the language. It's psycholinguistics and neurolinguistics. And you're guaranteed to come to the conclusions they want you to have. And experience even the emotions that you're supposed to have, reading even novels, things like that. These are all sciences. And the last person who's supposed to know that it's working on are the ones who it does work on, and that's you. We're so easily managed by behaviorists and psychologists of very high level. Stacks of material out there from universities on this kind of stuff, which folk aren't too interested in, except those who manage you. Uh, but buy the books I have, the, the discs I have, and the CDs. Some of the CDs have 50 shows on them. And because one time, who knows, they might just pull the sites just like that. It's happened before. And everything's gone. That's how it works in the real world. And you'll never get recompense from those who yank them. It's always some unfortunate accident they have when they're, they're maintaining the site. Stuff like that you get. And knowledge, once it's gone down the memory hole, is generally never retrieved, especially if they don't want it retrieved. And for to order the books and so on, you can use personal checks in Canada and in the U.S. to Canada. They're accepted here. International postal money orders from the U.S. to Canada from your post office is good. It's the only country left outside Canada where you can still use a, an international postal money order. It's accepted. They stopped it for the rest of the world. But Canada and the U.S. really are all one now. So we have the same um, call sign for your, for your long-distance dialing for the U.S. and Canada. And 
You can also use PayPal to purchase and donate. If you want to purchase the books, uh, send a separate email along with the donation from PayPal and give me your name and address and your order, and I'll get it out to you. Same across the rest of the world. There's also Western Union. They charge a bit of a fee, mind you, and MoneyGram. Some people just send cash, and so far uh, they still exchange this at banks, for again, for a small fee, but it's still smaller than wiring it. And as I say, I try to teach you, and it's very important you, you go through these books a technique of non-linear thinking, and you'll see simple cons of being in front of you all the time, which you've never seen before. It gets your mind working for the first time. A lot of work went into dumbing us all down and making us think in a linear fashion, predictable. Back after these messages with more. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt, we're cunning through the matrix, you know, we've been living in a form of socialism for our whole lives actually, and your parents were as well, anybody really born after World War II, and even during World War II and leading up to it was really in a socialist type system, and socialism, just like communism, means many different things to different strata of society. For those at the top, it has a completely different understanding and connotation than those at the bottom. It's important that the people at the bottom think they're going to get a lot of stuff for nothing and it's going to be a sort of utopia for them where they're going to be taken care of like perpetual children and all the accidents of life will be looked after for you and cleaned up and they'll put you to bed and tuck you in with cotton wool. That's basically socialism at the bottom level. It preys on your fears, fears of everything. We'll help you out should this happen and so on and so on. Those at the top, of course, are given the real, the real info inside stuff as to what it's about, and it's about controlling all of society. But those who set up the system didn't want just national socialism. That was a good start to things, but they wanted international socialism. And Bertrand Russell and others talked about this, that on a national basis it would break down, he said, so it would have to go international. Well, even when he was saying that, he knew it was already going international because he, he liaised with different departments within the United Nations, and that's what it was set up to do. And it was all to be be run and financed and owned, really, by the big banking families that formed the Royal Institute of International Affairs-CFR, the Milner Group, and so on. And within these these groups, like the the Milner Group and the the Royal Institute of International Affairs-CFR, there's an outer party and an inner party as well. Uh, And they, they do have meetings together sometimes, but they also have their inner one, for those at the top, the big high members, guys like Maurice Strong and all the relatives, because they're often related to each other, like Bob Ray. Bob Ray was actually the godfather. Uh, His godfather was Maurice Strong, I should say. And Bob Ray was given the premiership of Ontario, the governor of Ontario, I might say, because that's all Canada is. It's states, they call them provinces, and they call the governors premiers. So these characters get placed all throughout societal positions. They, they lead all the different sides of the parties because people really want to believe in parties. It gives them a, 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 the understanding it's a choice in life, but really there isn't. And that's why uh, the same United Nations treaty-type agenda, 
binding signatories and uh, and binding treaties goes ahead non-stop. And they never stop and tear up anything and say, well, that didn't work, uh, we'll, we'll try something else. No, they, they continue with the same inner, more binding and more binding with the same treaties for interdependence. And remember, socialism came out of a massive, massive movement with Marx, well-funded, by, again, by the same internationalists and bankers, because the society they envisaged would be one where the governments themselves would collect the debts off the public. Right? It's better than hiring your own guys to go door to door. Uh, they become hated. That's what happened in the past. The collectors who worked for the bankers were hated by the people. They owned all the properties and the rental accommodations throughout Britain, Germany, and different countries. So they became hated. It's far easier to get the governments to collect the money for debts by the governments borrowing in the first place and then mandating income taxes and different means of recouping the debts. It's more efficient for the boys at the top. So bankers love socialism. They love it. They're all behind it. And that's why you'll find every socialist-type movement, where it's to do with earth worship or earth care, uh, sustainability, the greening movements, you'll see at the top of them all the big CEOs of the international corporations are on board with it. Because really, uh, they know what they're really going to get out of it, and the public think they're all going to get screwed. It's the guys at the top, that is. But it's the opposite. Everything's double-think in reality, double-speak. And part of it, too, was in socialism is to scientifically design a society where you have stratas of important people, uh, value to society, value to community, lesser peoples, lesser types, right down to the bottom. And a long time ago, they talked about the unfit. The unfit was a big part of it, and you'll find uh, on the movie, the, the documentary, I should say, that's out there, hopefully still up there somewhere, the Soviet story, you'll hear some of the founders of the Fabian Society. There's a branch, a big branch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Um, Bernard, Lord, uh, Bernard Shaw, he's talking about when they're in power, he says, you will have to come to us and validate why we should allow you to live. So you have to validate it by proving how valuable to their system you would be. That is socialism, long before Adolf Hitler came along. Adolf just copied all these, this stuff and put it and agreed with it, you know, and actually put it into practice in a, in a more faster, efficient way. So, in fact, he even got the idea from Bernard Shaw because you, that in this old clip in the Soviet story, you'll hear Bernard Shaw saying, it's a, it's a very old uh, news clip, uh, he actually says uh, at one point, I think it's on that one, it's, I know it's a continuation of that speech anyway, I've seen it, and he said that uh, if the scientists could just get together and find a painless euthanasia to put them out their misery, you know, all the useless eaters, uh, a, a kind of gas or something, he said, uh, that would be very beneficial to the world society. And we find today, uh, when you're given these services, and Lenin talked about it, he says services will, will increase in the Western world, uh, socialist causes, etc. But they're really, they're, their job really is to become authorities over the people. And that's what you have now, your police authorities. These should be police services because you hired and fired them. We don't have that anymore. They're just there. And they don't see themselves as serving you at all especially for the last 25, 30 years, they've been taught to be more brutal and act like the characters in the movies that they constantly churn out with wearing black and combat boots and carrying big guns and yelling at folk and stuff like that. So 
socialism is not what people think at the bottom. At the bottom, they always want things. Help us here, help, help, help. I can remember the, the slight debate, there was no real debate at all actually, to do with should uh, the, the, the Canadian government support childcare for women and supply it. And it kind of phased in very, very quickly all over the place. Because they wanted the women out to work so, so that the children themselves would get the scientific indoctrination through kindergarten as Lord Bertrand Russell's uh, promoted. So get the minds young, you see, and, and get the women out there. That doubles the tax base, which was very successful too. And all these services, they say, become authorities. And then a few years later, uh, when some of these authorities went on strike uh, for kindergarten and daycare and childcare, the women were protesting the government with, with placards to attempt to look, to look after their children for them. That's just poor. It succeeded very well. So get guys are out of the picture, really. They're just, as they say themselves in all the women's magazines, they're just sperm donors. And the government is now Big Daddy. And the, the women are being taught to, to like it, you see. And as children getting brought up today uh, in dysfunctional family, well, whatever kind of family, mark one, two, three, or four family, and the children getting brought up, and they're calling their social workers and advisors by their first names. They call them up for everything and chat to them. That's the real extended family, scientists are, are the extended family. And that's the norm in Britain and other countries, a lot of other countries too. Now, Another part two, as I said, was that uh, in giving you health services to become authorities. So we see nothing but mandating inoculations on behalf of Big Pharma. And you've you got to tie that in with Bertrand Russell and the first CEO of UNESCO, uh, the, who was uh, Julian Huxley, who talks about the need to use pharma, pharmacology and inoculations, inoculations, to dumb down the people, to manage them better. Now, it's, I can read that once. And, and verify it and then look at what I see happening with autism and all the rest of it and the lackluster eyes in a lot of youngsters and I say it's happened. See, see the, the empirical proof is out there. If you look at other studies done over the last 30 to 50 years, you know, they do ongoing studies in psychology with the same studies to make sure the agenda is working. And I'll be talking about some of that later on too. But here's an article here from CNSN News. Now, in the U.S., they've been taught that Canada's healthcare system is wonderful. Canada, I read an article earlier this year where Canada spends about $48 million a year to propagandize and through advertising how wonderful its healthcare system is to the Canadians. You see? And um, they've been cutting back and cutting back and cutting back for years and years and years. Just as they did in Britain. They had a good working system in Britain initially, and then they went in and cut it back and cut it back. And I've gone through all the scams they've done throughout Britain as they're told to cut back and, and still perform. So what they do is get priorities. So you can go in for a vasectomy very quickly. You can get your tube ties tied very quickly. You can get abortions very quickly. But real operations for necessary functions are actually delayed or postponed altogether. And a lot of dirty tricks have happened to put people off from getting them. The hospitals even send out questionnaires to see when you're going on holiday. Then they send your time to come in when they know you are on holiday. Then you're put back on the bottom of the list and you wait another few years. This is the sort of system that, that uh, Bernard Shaw 
was talking about your value to society. And they're bringing it in the States, and they'll bring it in very swiftly. It's been happening for a few years, actually, quietly and covertly. Most folk don't know unless you're in touch with a lot of people in the medical industry in the U.S., and you find it's actually been, they've been setting it all up before Obama even came in. But here's an article here. It says, uh, May 27, 2010, CNSN News. It says, Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sibelius said on Wednesday that Dr. Donald Berwick, is a place name, by the way, you could be suspicious of folks with place names, an advocate of health care rationing nominated by President Barack Obama to run Medicare and Medicaid, is absolutely the right leader at this time. I'll say it again for the harder thinking. That first part is he's an advocate of health care rationing. You see? Health care rationing is what this new system is all about. So this is the right person, the right, right leader at this time to run the government's largest health care entitlement programs. Welcome to eugenics, folks, in socialism, all rolled into one. Back after this break. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix, just talking about the wonderful world of socialized medicine and the eugenics plan. Of course, it all ties together because there's just too much material out there put out by the big boys themselves. And I mentioned that 2001, you were going to see rationing in all kinds of areas come in. Uh, that night, in fact, the towers went down. I said you're going to see a war scenario a martial law type system with rationing of food and different things. Now, of course, here we go. It's rationing of everything. That's what it's all about. See, important people are supposed to live, and, and, and the useless eaters really should just die off. Of course, they won't tell you you're going to die off. Let's make sure you eat the lowest type of food possible. It's available from the crummy supermarkets. It's all GMO, including the meat itself, too. And full of chemicals, and you'll just die off with cancers and stuff. And they'll maybe give you a few pain pills at the end, and that'll be your treatment, you see. That's actually happening in Canada. They're dishing more pain medications to people than anything to treat their illnesses with. But it's cheaper that way. But it says here, and apart from that, when you're kind of high on, on painkillers, you see, you, you don't think too much about complaining, or maybe, in fact, you can't think too clearly about, maybe, I could, maybe they could treat this instead of just doping me, you see. That's actually policy. But it says here that uh, Dr. Donald Berwick, who is the advocate for health care rationing, health care rationing, folks, nominated by President Barack Obama to run Medicare and Medicaid, is absolutely the right leader at this time. That's one of the little inside things. You know, the right, the, often they'll say it's an idea whose time has come, stuff like that. The right leader at the right time. So this guy's going to make big changes. Under the health care reform law signed by President Obama in March, hundreds of billions of dollars will be cut from the Medicare program over the next decade. Now, those hundreds of millions of dollars are already closing hospitals down across the U.S. who treated the people who had no insurance at all. And they gave them awfully, well, stuff you'd never see in Britain or Canada. Without policies. It was all charged to the state. Well, that's all you get cut out, you see. So hundreds of Billions, billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars will be cut from the Medicare program over the next decade. Berwick is nominated to run the Centers for Medicare and Medicare Services, CMS, which oversees Medicare. So that's just your socialist eugenics program going a step further to catch up with the rest of the world. 
Now, there's an interesting article here about empathy. Empathy. I've talked about psychology and I've read from Bertrand Russell's studies on the air uh, and the study. Now, he worked with all these big boys. He also worked with the Macy Group. He worked with the Frankfurt Group that gave you a culture, uh, along with the Bernays and so on. And um, they all knew each other and worked with each other and talked about the right society that they'd bring in, this scientifically created society. And Russell said that through the creation of uh, egocentrism, and and uh, narcissism, if they can get the people to be narcissistic, break the bonds that they make them a, a people and a real community where they help each other and care for each other because they want the services to come in and take over as authorities, you see. But also break the bond between male and female and make them very hedonistic. These are his words, hedonistic and narcissistic. And then the state can go full steam ahead. And when everyone's been narcissistic, running and spinning in their own little world, they, they tend to all go along with the flow without questioning where they're all going. You see? It's been very successful. And this came out of a, of a, an a, a annual meeting of psychologists, behaviorists, and uh, they do all these studies ongoing. Same studies to make, to see how it's working, you see? And give the same questionnaires out to students and test the students to see if it's really working the way they want, and they've got exactly what they want. It says here, today's college students lack empathy. There's an article on LiveScience.com. I've also looked into the site itself from the, the meeting they had in Boston. And it says, college students today are less likely to get emotions of others, to understand, that's what they mean by even the, even the minimalistic speech, unlikely to get the emotions of others than their counterparts 20 or 30 years ago, a new review study suggests. That's how they phrase it, suggesting, you see. Specifically today, students scored 40% lower on a measure of empathy than their elders did. See, they use the same testing to see if their agenda is working. The findings are based on a review of 72 studies of 14,000 American college students overall conducted between 1979 and 2009. We found the biggest drop in empathy after the year 2000, said Sarah Conrath, a researcher at the University of Michigan's Institute for Social Research. Very important place, you know, uh, Michigan University. Uh, the Pentagon runs it. The study was presented this week at the annual meeting of the Association for Psychological Science in Boston. Is generation me all about me? Compared with college students of the late 1970s, current students are less likely to agree with statements such as, I sometimes try to understand my friends better by imagining how things look from their perspective, and I often have tender, concerned feelings for people less fortunate than me. Many people see the current group of college students, sometimes called Generation Me, as one of the most self-centered. Now, remember what Bertrand Russell said and, and Julian Huxley for UNESCO, the, creating the common culture for students across the world, remember? Uh, self-centered, narcissistic, right on, that's what they said they'd bring in, competitive, confident, and individualistic in recent history, said Conrath, who is also affiliated with the University of Rochester Department of Psychiatry. Conrad's colleague, uh, graduate student, Edward O'Brien, added, it's not surprising that this growing emphasis is on the self as accompanied by a, correspond, a corresponding, very important part of this, as they get more narcissistic and egocentric, is accompanied by a corresponding devaluation of others. Devaluation of others, folks. Anything can be done now to society, and they don't care. Back with more after this. 
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. This is Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix. Reading an article about the lack of empathy that's showing with narcissistic tendencies in today's society. And same tests as I've been doing for 30 years to, to let them know at the top that it's working. I mean, this is all done for very high studies that go way beyond the guys that take part in it and the, and the psychologists who, who monitor it. It goes up to Pentagon levels and global governance levels and so on, which tells them they're right on path with it. It says, compared to 30 years ago, the average American now is exposed to three times as much non-work-related information, Conrath said. In terms of media content, this generation of college students grew up with video games and a growing body of research, including work done by my colleagues at Michigan, is establishing that exposure to violent media numbs people to the pain of others. Well, of course it does. They've known that for a long time. They use these games for the military for that purpose. That's why they invented them. So you kill without thinking or feeling. It says the rise in social media could also play a role. The ease in having, uh, quotation marks, friends online might make people more likely to just tune out when they don't feel like responding to others' problems, a behavior that could carry over offline. Actually, what it also does too is make them very sarcastic and almost um, uh, disgusted at other people's problems. That's how they are amongst themselves. They all get off, you know, they really attack them. They hate weakness, you see. All their heroes are big, strong people who slaughter folk in movies. It says, in fact, past research has suggested college students are addicted to social media. And, of course, they are. They were meant to be. It was designed for that. Other possible causes include a society today that is hyper-competitive and focused on success, as well as the fast-paced nature of today in which people are less likely than in time periods past to slow down to really listen to others, O'Brien added. Well, it's true. It's all data, data, isn't it? They're flooding them with data, excess data doesn't really matter what it contains. Then you tie it in with this other article here, and it's from the Wall Street Journal. It says, Why Generation Y Johnny Can't Read Nonverbal Cues. Very interesting. Again, this is psychology. It says, In September 2008, while Nielsen Mobile announced that teenagers with cell phones each send and receive on average 1,742 text messages a month. The numbers sounded high, but just a few months later, Nielsen raised the tally to 2,272. A year earlier, the National School Boards Association estimated that middle and high school students devoted an average of nine hours to social networking each week, add mail, blogging, IM, tweets, and other digital customs, and you realize what kind of hurried 24-7 communication systems young people experience today. Unfortunately, nearly all of their communication tools involve the exchange of written words alone. At least phones, cellular, and otherwise allow the transmission of tone of voice, pauses, and the like. See, there's a lot to language. I've mentioned this before, and I've went over this article before, too. But even these cues are absent in the text-dependent world. Users insert smiley faces into emails, but they don't see each other's actual faces. They read comments on Facebook, but they don't read each other's posture, hand gestures, eye movements, shifts in personal space, and other non-verbal and expressive behaviors. Back in 1959, the anthropologist Edward T. Hall, very important, he's an anthropologist working with the psychologist folks, uh, labeled these expressive human attributes the silent language. 
Hall passed away last month in Santa Fe at 95, but his writings on non-verbal communication deserve continued attention. He argued that body language, facial expressions, and stock mannerisms function in juxtaposition to words, imparting feelings, attitudes, reactions, and judgments in a different register. That's why Hall explained U.S. diplomats could enter a foreign country fully competent in the native language and yet still flounder from one miscommunication to another, having failed to decode the manners, gestures, and subtle protocols that go along with words. And how could they, for the silent language is acquired through acculturation, not schooling? Social interaction, in their words. Not only is it unspoken, it is largely unconscious. The meaning that pass through it remain, remain implicit, more felt than understood. They are, however, operative. Much of our social and workplace lives runs on them. For Hall, breakdowns in non-verbal communication took place damagingly in cross-cultural circumstances. For instance, feral workers dealing with Navajo Indians and misconstruing their basic conceptions of time. Within cultures, Hall assumed people more or less spoke the same silent language. They may no longer, thanks to the avalanche of all verbal communication. In Silicon Valley itself, as the Los Angeles Times reported last year, some companies have installed the topless meeting, in which not only laptops but iPhones and other tools are banned to combat a new problem, continuous partial attention. With a device close by, attendees at workplace meetings simply cannot keep their focus on the speaker. It's too easy to check mail, stock quotes, and Facebook, while a quick log-on may seem to the user a harmless break. Others in the room receive it as a silent dismissal. It announces, I'm not interested, so the tools must now remain at the door. Older employees might well accept such a ban, but younger ones might not understand it. Reading a text message in the middle of a conversation isn't a lapse to them. It's what you do. It has, they assume, no non-verbal meaning to anyone else. It does, of course, but how could they know it? We live in a culture where young people, outfitted with iPhone and laptop and devoting hours every evening from the age of 10 onwards to messaging of one kind or another, are even less likely to develop the silent fluency that comes from face-to-face interaction. It's a skill we all learn in actual social settings from people, often older, who are adept in the idiom. As text-centering messaging increases, such occasions diminish. The digital natives improve their adroitness at the keyboard, but when it comes to their capacity to read the behavior of others, they are all thumbs. Nobody knows the extent of the problem. It's too early to assess the effects of digital habits. Well, they do know in, in higher studies, of course, like they do in the higher MIT and so on. And the tools change so quickly that research can't keep up with them, yada, yada, yada. However, it goes on to say how they react how youngsters react in, in company now. It's, it, because they, they avoid each, looking at each other. And they avoid looking at even their peer group. They're losing the ability to have direct contact. You'd actually think they, were, they, they suffered um, from autism to watch some of them. It was a turn aside. And the, the body language they're saying is, I'm tuning out here and... Uh, and to others who, who, who see that happening, it's, uh, it's unacceptable, it's, it's kind of uh, rude, and so on. They don't know how to interact with real people. That's the way it's supposed to be. It was designed this way. Designed this way. Now, socialism, again, is all about control, remember. Control. And it's a very good article about control through socialism. And it's from the UK column. 
It's just the Lima Declaration, foundation of globalism. It wasn't the foundation, but it was certainly a further integration of their mandate. And it says March 29, 2010. Uh, it says, on the 22nd of February, the Register, a UK technology website, published an article entitled The Myth of Britain's Manufacturing Decline. Now, I talked before about living through this uh, massive deindustrialization that really hit from the about 69 right through for, from a long period. That's all you heard on the news was closure, factories closing, but they weren't telling the, the public why. And says, what I wondered, could a publication that focused on IT and finds it amusing uh, positions to place Playmobil plastic characters know about British manufacturing? As I read the article, I realize the answer is nothing. The author makes one fundamental mistake. It's not his fault. It's the same mistake just about every modern economic commentator makes when discussing economy to assume that economic value and monetary value are the same thing. It says, the author of the Register article wrote, That's from something called the Index of Production, and it's a chart of the value of manufacturing output in the UK since just after World War II. It's an index, and 100 is is defined as the level of output in 2005. As you can see, we produced some two and a half times what we did in the 40s, when absolutely everyone, to hear the stories told, was gainfully employed, making whippet flanges. So at first glance, it would seem to be untrue that we actually produce less than we used to. So that's, that's the mistake that economists go off into. The first and most obvious thing is to point out that the index isn't measuring how much we make. It's measuring the value of what we make. This, of course... The only thing we should be interested in, increasing the value of what is produced means that there is more value to be shared among all of us doing the producing. Well, no, actually, what it means is that there's more cash to go into the pockets of shareholders and board members. And then it's on to show you how uh, this fallacy uh, of, of the index and how they work it has nothing to do with the jobs in production. Alongside this, it's also uh, obvious that fewer people are employed in manufacturing than in pl- present or in the past. But we've got rising production and fewer workers. This is what is technically known in economics as circles as a good thing. Again, this, it is not. It is not a good thing. This guy is disputing it. First of all, how many fewer people are employed today than in the past? What skills have been lost as a result of that reduction in the productive workforce? The author doesn't discuss these questions. The sad truth is that the British manufacturing has been decimated, particularly in the last 30 years or so. Now, they, they agreed to do this, by the way, at the end of World War II, under the Lend-Lease program in, in church, all these boys. That was part of the deal. They, they gradually bring this in, and it whip up in the 70s until it's all gone, abroad. Britain used to have a steel industry. We used to produce our own energy. We used to we used these these capabilities to produce ships, cars, military hardware, aircraft, bridges, and a host of other products we could be proud of. It's all gone. And for someone to throw up a graph and an article to suggest that, that it's all okay because our collapsed manufacturing industry is actually resulting in more pounds or dollars is disingenuous at best. You may be asking why this happened. The normal answer is globalization, but globalization is not an accident. One of its cornerstones is called the Lima Declaration. The Lima Declaration. You can look that up too. I'll put a link up for you at cuttingthroughmatrix.com. The full title of this treaty is Lima Declaration and Plan of Action on Industrial Development and Cooperation. It was signed in 75 at a convention of the United Nations Industrial Development Organization. In Lima, Peru, the treaty is an international agreement to wind down national manufacturing in developed nations and transfer that manufacturing capability to developing nations. 
Ever heard of GATT, folks, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs? That's how they rammed it through later on and finished the job. This treaty sets the policy which has over 30 years encouraged corporations to build themselves into globalist multinationals. It only benefits those corporations and their international bankers. A key clause states, recognizing the urgent need to bring about the establishment of a new international economic order based on equity, sovereign equality, interdependence and cooperation, as has been expressed in the Declaration and Program of Action on the establishment of a new international economic order in order to transform the present structure of economic relations. That's why you were deindustrialized. Interdependence is the end of independence. As I've said that all along, I'm glad other folk are using it. The term interdependence is new speak coined by the Club of Rome. According to the Club of Rome, we said a face of interlocking global problems such as overpopulation, food shortages, non-renewable resource depletion, environmental degradation, etc., with the use of absurd, exponentially based computer models, the complete unraveling of society, and perhaps the biosphere was predicted. They said they'd use that as an excuse to bring it all through. The only solution capable... uh, read, Read their book from the Club of Rome, The First Global Revolution. The only solution capable of averting global catastrophe, according to the Club of Rome, is to develop an organic society. In a very interesting term, you see, because you have to go and see who first used that. Although it's frequently denied, it should be obvious that the idea of interdependence and independence are mutually exclusive. Any nation that has to rely on another for something it needs must at least acknowledge limits to its own independence. Independence is totali- interdependence is totalitarian. I think it's about Bertrand Russell. I'm glad other folk are reading him now. Those who will know me, he says, will recognize how much sarcasm is dripping from that sentence. My favorite Russell book is his 1952, The Impact of Science on Society. This book should be required reading for anyone wishing to understand the agenda and what we're witnessing today. Russell had quite a lot to say about the organic society in that book. The most obvious and inescapable effect of scientific technique is that it makes society more organic in a sense of increasing the interdependence of its various parts. Totalitarianism has a theory as well as a practice. As a practice, it means that a certain group having by one means or another seized the apparatus of power, especially armaments and police, proceed to exploit to their advantage, advantageous position to the utmost by regulating everything in the way that gives them the maximum of control over others. But as a theory, it is sometimes different. It is the doctrine of that the state or the nation or the community is capable of a good different from that of individual and not consisting of anything that individuals think or feel. This doctrine was especially advocated by Hegel, who glorified the state and thought that a community should be as organic as possible. In an organic community, he thought excellence would reside in the whole. An individual is an organism, and we do not think that his separate parts have separate goods. If he has a pain in his great toe, it is he that suffers, not specially the great toe. So in an organic society, good and evil will be belong to the whole rather than the parts. This is the theoretical form of totalitarianism. In concrete fact, when it's pretended that the state has a good different from that of the citizens, what is really meant is that the good of the government or of the ruling class is more important than that of other people. Such a view can have no basis except an arbitrary power. 
More important than these metaphysical speculations is the question whether a scientific dictatorship such as we have been discussing, this is Russell, can be stable or is more likely to be stable than a democracy. This is what he says. I do not believe that dictatorship is a lasting form of scientific society unless, but this proviso is important, it can become worldwide, global folks. So dictatorship can last in a global society. Remember, jump to Aldo Huxley, what he said, uh, that said the same thing. Internationalism, an international dictatorship under a scientific dictatorship, there was no reason why it couldn't last forever. You see, if you're no competition, if if you can't point over there and say, gee, look at how they live, we don't want that here. You have nothing to compare yourselves to. But every country is under the same totalitarian, exactly the same regime. And then you think it must be normal. You have nothing to compare anything to. This is interesting to observe the pleasant-sounding words used to sell totalitarian to us, or totalitarianism to us, organic, holistic. Remember psycholinguistics? Organic, holistic, differentiated, harmonious, interdependent, balanced, and sustainable. What about manufacturing? So, if the Lima Declaration is about the establishment of global totalitarianism, what does it say about manufacturing? Resolution 27. Developed countries such as the UK should expand imports from developing countries. Resolution 28. Requires that developing countries increase their industrial growth by more than the 8% recommended in earlier United Nations meetings and increase their exports by 350% by year 2000. Resolution 35, developed countries such as the UK should transfer technical, financial and capital goods to developing countries to accomplish Resolution 28 above. This was an international agreement. Every prime minister and president across the planet signed it. And you wonder what happened as you floated through life. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt, we're cutting through the matrix and reading an article about the Lima Declaration, one in many treaties, ongoing of course, always signing deeper and deeper into it for interdependence and the transfer of all technology and industry abroad. Uh, started off on a big way in about 1970 and really uh, sped up since then. Those living through those times know the chaos in, in across the European countries because they all signed on to it by the way. And all you had every night in the news was factory this closing down. They didn't tell you they're moving them all over to China and elsewhere. And they were training the engineers for China to operate these factories in places like Canada, thousands of them, year after year after year, training them before they even had the factories to work in. And then your, your leaders again signed the GATT Treaty, General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, which cemented it and made the taxpayer fund the transfer of your own corporations and factories abroad wholesale. Up and, up and over and rebuilt over there. The taxpayers in the Western countries paid for all of it, including any losses they claimed to incur for the first 10 years, and that could be extended for another 10. And you think you have governments. Well, if you have governments, they're certainly not serving you, are they? And to cap off tonight, too, I'll just mention something about Google. And all you people out there that just grab a hold of stuff and run with it. I, mean, you've, you've, <laughs> I told you. I like the guy from Facebook. He told you the truth. He told you what he thought of you. 
You seldom get that from these psychopaths. He told you what he thought of you. Idiots. Just jump in, it's free. And here's Google Street View, secretly took your Wi-Fi details and will use the data to target ads at mobile phones and so on. I'll put that link up there. That's from the, the mail on Sunday, 29th of May. And then you go into Microsoft again. Uh, Microsoft's Orwellian tracking system goes public. That's from the Inquirer. Um, the developer of Qt Software, Microsoft has publicly released a tagging system that allows users to leave a breadcrumb trail to, to the, for the firm, its advertisers, and just about anyone else to follow. Uh, basically, that will pay for it. Yeah. Beautiful, isn't it? And then again, you've got uh, Microsoft Home. I like the, the names Home. They're, they're like guys, don't they? But anyway, um, let's users compare energy use with neighbors. What do you see? You train them with, with social approval and disapproval. The UN said that, didn't they? That's how they use it in China, where the neighbors turn on someone who's pregnant with a second child, drag her off for their abortion. Social disapproval. Microsoft lets users com- compare use with their neighbors. Uh, and it's, it says here, Microsoft's home energy management application now provides users with energy efficiency scores for their properties that can be compared with scores for neighbors and households elsewhere in the country. Oh, you'll see them all competing to be good greenies. And you'll hear the, the, the tisk, tisk for the ones who don't quite measure up, you know. Then it'll also be a snob thing, too, where certain folk can afford to burn the lights and have parties, and like Al Gore, you know, for his second house he has there. It burns more than a whole bunch of apartment buildings, and that's for the occasional guest. Microsoft announced the new function of its free program this week and said it can provide scores of 60 million homes in the U.S. Working with real estate data, the tool operates using advanced analytics licensed from Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, the military industrial complex, and statistical data from the Department of Energy. It's Microsoft's bid to join the array of offerings that enable homeowners to gauge their energy use with the help of dashboards and other tools and ultimately reduce consumption. Social approval, social disapproval, behaviorism, psychology, folks, you're all, all subject to it, and you don't even know it. From Hamish, myself, and Interior Canada, it's good night to mean your God or your gods go with you.